Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Al D, and the author of MBA Insider. This podcast is for career-driven professionals looking for advice on how to grow their careers by leveraging the skills, experiences, and knowledge gained from an MBA degree. In each episode, I'll give you a look into the business school experience, along with practical tips, career advice, and real-life stories to help professionals grow their careers. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBAschool.com. Today, I'm excited because I have the pleasure of having Tim Sanders with me. Tim is a VP of Insights at Upwork, but he's also a best-selling author and a keynote speaker. He's the author of five books, including the New York Times bestseller, Love is the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence Friends, and his publications have over sold over 1 million copies in print with bestseller status in India, South Korea, Italy, Brazil, and Denmark. Tim is a world-renowned keynote speaker, and I think about the importance of relationships when it comes to business. Tim's you know, definitely at the top of my list in terms of people who really understand that. And really quickly, as some background, I got Tim's book, Love is a Killer App, when I was in high school. And it fundamentally shaped how I have thought about my approach to building relationships and collaborating with other people. And at this point, I've probably gifted it to about 30 people. So I feel very grateful that Tim's here today to talk to me about how to build relationships in business, particularly for those who are trying to advance their careers. Tim, first and foremost, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I always love starting with a warm-up question. Growing up, if you think back to being in middle school or high school, what was your favorite class or subject? Debate. Man, okay. I got to tell you that debate turned me around as a person and taught me how to be a winner. I uh, joined the debate team my sophomore year. I was living in eastern New Mexico. I went on to win the state championship. I got recruited to go to Odessa Community College. We were the... Um, second community college ever to be invited to the national debate tournament. Al, I want you to think of that as the nerd March Madness. And uh, we actually made it all the way to the Elite Eight and uh, got pounded by Louisville in the quarters. But it was a game-changing experience for me. It gave me the confidence for the rest of my life. But the most important thing about debate, it made me a researcher. It made me enjoy going to the library, organizing information, employing critical thinking to look at, quote, evidence to see if it really stood the test of methodology assessment. And that's working for me every day of my business life. So I look back on debate as a turning point in my life. I love that. And I can see so many of those lessons and how they were great seeds to plant for some of the things that you would go on to do whether it's being a keynote speaker, being able to write books, multiple books, and everything, plenty of other things in your career. And that really is wonderful. And speaking of your career, just knowing a little bit about your background from the book, but also following it, you've been able to work at some pretty innovative and exciting companies along the way, in addition to having founded your own company. Would love to maybe hear from you, what are maybe two or three career highlights, whether you know, it was working at broadcast.com back when that was big or, or Yahoo. But could you share maybe a highlight or two and then sure. some lessons from those experiences? Here we go. Highlights, lowlights, midlights. Highlight, having the opportunity to work for Mark Cuban and Todd Wagner at AudioNet. Go to work for them in 1997. They turn into broadcast.com, most successful opening day in IPO history. Of course, they sell to Yahoo. Mark buys a basketball team. I moved to the Silicon Valley and my career, you know, really took off from there because of the opportunities and as well as the challenges 
that were put in front of me. I mean, I got to Yahoo just in time for the dot-com crash. I was there like 90 days before the market tanked. And so I got to be part of the Yahoo Preservation Society, if you will, keep that company afloat, which we did by Lycos and Excite and others went down. We stayed standing. It took three more years for us to get knocked out by Google. I could tell you more about why that happened. But that was a huge highlight in my career because I was given an opportunity by Mark. I took advantage of it by over-investing in delivering value to the company. And most importantly, that's where I learned to deliver value insights to the customers as the way of building relationships. But that's what I'll, I'll stop there and say that. Then low light, because I want to point that out, Al. I want to be very transparent with you because not everybody's business journey is perfect. In 2012, after publishing my fourth book, I co-founded a startup. And the startup was a freelancer marketplace for publishing. And what we did is we made it possible for an author to share their royalties, say uh, Kindle royalties, with freelancers who were helping them in addition to paying them cash so as to be able to create a virtual team, like their own label, around their book ideas. It gave them more control. Oftentimes it led to faster publishing times, et cetera. Why was that a low light? Because I undervalued the importance of fundraising from the beginning of the startup. In other words, I had cash. My partner and I funded it. But at 25 to 30 grand every two weeks, you get up every day with a pit in your stomach and you look at your savings account, watch that thing head down. And a year in, you say, okay, I'm going to raise money. And then you think that you're going to go out and people are just going to give you checks. No, I went out and we didn't have enough time and it shows. And the low light was don't ever let yourself get leveraged in a startup. You need to raise money faster than you think you need to. I've been on 13 boards since then. And this is what I tell everybody that I talk to in startup land. You are behind on fundraising and you need to wake up with a sense of urgency from the day you have the idea that you need to raise money because it's harder than you think. So that, that was a low light. We ended up having to shutter that company. Well, for me, it was a great life experience. I had developed a taste in freelancer platforms. And so here I am, 10 years later, an executive at Upwork, the world's leading work marketplace. So it wasn't a complete loss, but it was a big time lesson learned. Yeah, well, and I think the important thing is that it is a lesson learned and clearly it's fueled other opportunities for you down the road. So it mm -hmm. certainly don't want to underscore the challenge or pain, but it is one of those things where if you can hold space for it long enough, at some point, opportunities can come from it. And yeah. I'm certainly glad they did. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, well, great. Me well, too. One, one thing I, I did want to ask you about just to set the frame for this, the, it was just looking it up. Love is the killer app came out in 2002. I would yep. love for you to maybe talk a little bit about it. And also, what was the inspiration for writing the book? Love is the Killer app is basically a system that I had developed that led to breakthrough success in my career. And one of my favorite comedians, the late, great Mitch Hedberg, once said, I discovered the meaning of life, but I forgot to write it down. And I took that to heart. So when I was working for Mark, Inspired by Mark, by the way, I became a voracious reader. 
because Mark believed that readers were better leaders, that learners were bigger time earners. He'd, he would read 50, 60 books a year. And he wouldn't just read on the thing that he was doing. He'd read everything adjacent to it because he believed that if you fed your mind, you could trust your gut when it was go time and you could be faster at decision-making, which of course he was. So when I was working for Mark, I was a voracious reader. I would package all the knowledge that I gained. I would actually reach out to the authors like you're doing, get even deeper insights. And then I would share it. I would share it with my colleagues. I would share it with any customer I talked to. I'd share it with any small trade association that invited me to come to their conference with my sideburns and sunglasses. And I learned that when you share, you do not lose what you share. It actually grows through the feedback loop. And it led me to a way of developing relationships, Al, which is based on sharing intangibles. And when Mark sold to Yahoo and I met the executives inclusive of, of Jerry Yang, for example, they really liked my method of relationship building. And it was at a time, this is now the year 2000, when Yahoo really needed to start developing relationships with ad agencies and marketing leaders, because banner ads uh, or online advertising, for that matter, wasn't a proven winner yet. So we really needed to develop trust. We needed to get people to think of us strategically. So they let me create, a, if you will, a sales enablement function we called the Value Lab, where I'd hire analysts right out of grad school, whether it was Georgetown or Thunderbird School of Management, and we would be the front end, the tip of the spear when Yahoo was pursuing partnerships. So we'd go in and present to Sony about the opportunity of digital advertising. We'd go in and present to Pepsi about the opportunity of creating an infomediary business model like what FedEx had created over the years. And I started to do a little training program in 2000 for the new Yahoo's, kind of like an onboarding program. And it was the basis of Love is the Killer app. And it basically said, if you trust the universe enough to grow everybody you come in contact with, humans are kind, they reciprocate, you will develop relationships that stand the test of time, you'll develop an incredibly strong personal brand and success will flow to you. And the secret to that was you aggregate and share knowledge you aggregate and share your network of personal relationships. I still believe that your network is your ultimate net worth. And most of all, you show your compassion and your human nature to other people. And uh, you do those three things. You build a strong relationship. So what happened was I was giving a presentation to a small real estate group in 2000. And every time I gave my future of the internet presentation, the last five minutes of my talk, I talked about love is the killer app, which I didn't call it that at the same time. I just called it sharing. But at the end of it, I talked about the idea that the reason I was there is because I was committed to share knowledge because I believe you never get dumber by making other people smarter. And I invited them to do the same thing. This woman comes up from the back of the room and she says, darling, you have a book in you. And I didn't know what that meant at the time. She gave me her name. I went home and looked her up on Prodigy. <laughs> I wish I was kidding. Turns out she was a literary agent. She had discovered Tony Robbins, Dr. Stephen Covey, and Phil McGraw, and Deepak Chopra, and a few others. I knew she was the real deal. I had a meeting with her the next week. We became friends. Six months later, I had a deal with Random House Crown. And everything just flowed from there. So it's almost like you ask a band, how did you get your record deal? And they're like, I don't know. We played the right gig. 
We followed up. We had the right material. That's the advice I always give other authors. Just focus on your material. Focus on an insight that matters. Focus on something that you can write that not only adds value, but you're the only person in the world that can write it. You're not just writing it because you think it should be written or it hasn't been written yet. You're writing it because it works in the real world. And you want to share that with other people. Uh, thank you for sharing the story behind that. It's, and also giving some of the principles of Love of the Killer app. And I love the Mish Hedberg, Hedberg quote. Uh, it's always a classic one. And just thinking back just to what yeah. you shared, just about some of the principles in Lovers the Killer app, and knowing that it was written in 2002, I would love to know from you, what still really is relevant just as much today in 2022 as it was in 2002? And what maybe is nuanced or what has changed? First of all, I got to give you my favorite Mitch Hedberg joke, which is literally yeah. true. You want this one? This is how I used to open it sets. Okay, ready? The tag on this shirt says dry clean only, which means it's dirty. There you go, buddy. I love that one. All right, let's talk about it. Yeah, it's been 20 years. Love is a Killer Up celebrated a 20-year anniversary this Valentine's Day because it came out on Valentine's Day. Okay. And uh, I thought about rewriting it. I thought about updating it. I'm, I'm leaving it as is because the voice is the voice of a late 30-year-old uh, full of joy. And to some level, a little bit of ignorance about how the world works. But I think sometimes that's important for you to deliver purely a point of view instead of uh, couching it with so many conditions, if you will, or disclaimers. Like a guy like me that's 60 would, you know, today. But let's go through this. First, let's talk about what's nuanced or changed. In the book, I say you need to be a voracious reader of books. You need to be reading a book at least one a month. That helps you add value in conversation with your colleagues or your customers. I believe that. But in the book, I said, you should only read hardcovers because I love the idea of being able to take notes. Hardcovers were easier to write in. That way you could aggregate a lot better knowledge, if you will, that you could go back and review really quickly. I, at the time when I wrote the book, I wasn't a big fan of the early eBooks that I was hearing about, electronic paper, as they used to call it. I've changed since then. I'm a Kindle reader. The tech got a lot better. I had an opportunity to actually meet with people that were doing more designs on the Kindle and give them feedback on what I thought would make it better. And I'm very pleased to say that I read almost exclusively via Kindle these days because I'm able to carry around all my knowledge right here on the phone. And I've learned how to do rips out of my Kindle, meaning a cut and, cut and copy and move them over to Evernote where they're more searchable and organizable. So I've changed my tune. I like eBooks now. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I talked about the idea that you can, you can do a lot of network introductions in person. I'm actually a big fan of doing that. Obviously, we're time-pressed. COVID actually makes, even, makes that even harder, et cetera. I said there's a backup. You can do it with email. In the book, however, I didn't explain as well as I wish I would have the difficulty of introducing people via email with their clogged inbox. So over the years, I would see people say, Tim, meet Al, go make history, go. And then Al doesn't follow up with Tim because it's one of a gazillion emails. So today I have a more refined approach to email introductions where I believe if I'm going to introduce, for example, if I'm going to introduce Al to somebody that I know, say uh, Aaron, who I work with at, at, at Upwork, I would say, hey, Al, I want you to meet Aaron, hyperlink to his LinkedIn profile. I would give you a short one sentence reason that you should meet him. He runs communications at Upwork. 
He can give you direct access to our CEO, Hayden Brown, who I think you want to interview. And then I would say, Aaron, I want you to meet Al. And I'd hyperlink back to you. And I'd say, Al has a compelling podcast that is targeted towards MBAs and other people pursuing a business career. I'd vouch for you. And then the key to all of this, though, isn't so much that I do a little bit more work to lend mutual credibility. I now look at networking introductions like this from the lens that there is always a, a benefactor and a beneficiary. Truly, in most situations, you're not introducing people that have exactly the equal footing. One person has something they can offer the other person. Okay? You need to know the difference. So I often then would first contact the benefactor, the person who can do the favor. And I'd say, hey, Aaron, I'm about to introduce you to someone who runs a podcast that I want you to meet. Are you going to be responsive if I introduce him to you? And they'd text back or they'd call back and say, yeah, I'm ready. And then I'd hit the email. If I didn't see the beneficiary, that's you, Al. If I didn't see you respond in one day, I'm going to call you and say, Al, I pre-qualified this. You need to get on the phone with Aaron and make this connection happen. I've learned that it just a little bit more care to networking introductions, you get a lot more value out of them and you get a higher fuse rate, as I like to call it. Finally, the other thing that changed is that when I wrote the book back in 2000, I just have to say, I'm just a very warm person. I'm a hugger. I just, not anymore. I was a hugger big time because I wanted people to understand how much I cared for them and it broke the ice. And obviously, Al, the world has changed and we shouldn't do that. And I'm a little bit more, more distance and nuance when it comes to that, not because I don't feel that way anymore. It's just society's changed a lot where that's problematic. So I think we can express compassion in different ways. And so today I express it with my energy and my willingness to prepare and my empathy, which is something else that I've been studying a lot. It was a big part of my second book. So yeah, that's the other nuance part. Don't, don't leave with a hug. You better have expressed permission <laughs> if, if that's how you want to express feelings towards people at work. Thank you for dissecting that and breaking it down a little bit. And I think one of the things that I guess I took away just from hearing some of this is that some of the core underlying principles remain the same, but uh, absolutely, there are new ways to go about and new means to go about achieving them. Yeah, let's talk about that. What's remained the same of all things? Let me tell you what has remained the same, and that is people are searching for answers, which means you have a tremendous opportunity to multiply the value, not add value, but multiply the value by being a student who is constantly processing, comparing, and collaborating with others to develop deep insights that can move business partners and colleagues forward. The world is searching for answers. The place I entered, 1997, dawn of the internet, www one we still live in that world. Today, it's just different. I talked to a company, they're searching for answers on digital. They're trying to figure out how to get from zero to one with machine learning. They're trying to figure out the difference between a data lake and a data silo. They're trying to figure out, oh, how do we make growth plans run at a higher velocity? I do a lot of work in private equity. They're searching for answers. So the pump is still primed for a knowledge pack rat like me to share and find a receptive audience for my insight. So that is still 100% the same. I love that. And I, I, think you're, I think you're absolutely right. I do want to talk a little bit about just the fact that the, obviously we've gone through 
a lot over the past two years, not to be trite, but one of the That's things true. that I think we learned particularly early on during the, uh, the, in the COVID-19 outbreak was just the importance that we all longed in terms of feeling connected with one another, with our communities, with our companies, with other people in the world. And I think that is something that even in where we are today is still really true. And yeah. I, I, I just would love to just hear just from you, just the, given the principles of Love is the Killer app and just thinking about, we're still certainly managing through COVID and, and it still is very much a part of this, but as we move forward, how do those themes of Love is a Killer app and just our desire as humans to be connected interplay with one another? How can we think about that as we think about how we stay connected to our communities, to our companies, for companies to, to connect their, to their employees and to connect their employees together? I think we're lonelier mm -hmm. yeah. as a culture than we've ever been. I think that because of COVID, we have virtualized much of our existence and none of us feel as connected today in 2022 as we were in 2019. And I mean that because it's just really hard to develop uh, over the internet protocol the, the type of communication qualities that we develop across a table. It's just true. Now, we can get pretty close, and I've worked really hard at it, and I do feel like I have developed purely virtual friendships that are as tight as any friendships I've ever had, but we are lonelier than ever. We spend more time looking at our phone, nurturing fake relationships on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn. And I find that we, we seek to be surrounded by people that truly care about our outcomes. And it really has to do with the pressures of society, the pressures of business, because when you feel a lot of pressure, as Dr. Stephen Covey Sr. would say, you will feel that scarcity mentality, that there is not enough to go around it, whatever, enough time, enough credit, enough capital, and it will change your behavior. And I think that the primary effect of COVID, and we're seeing it now as leaders of businesses with the great resignation, the primary effect is to induce scarcity, which is an airborne emotional contagion. And I think that has caused us as humans to be less emotionally generous with others because we're all in that Maslowian base one mode right now, survival and security. We're, we're far away from those self-actualization top of the pyramid times that we were at in 2018 and 2019. So I think that's the challenge. And I think that's also the opportunity. Be the most caring person amongst others that you meet. Or as uh, Dale Carnegie said, 1928, when he was teaching men a relationship building at the YMCA in Manhattan, you will accomplish more developing an interest in other people than you will ever accomplish trying to get other people interested in you. I think it's, it, it's so funny. Whenever we talk about relationship building in any form, somehow it always and tangentially maps back to Dale Carnegie. There's yeah. a lot of lessons to be learned in that. But one of the things that I, I, I think about, just even given your role working at Upwork, is that in the, the, the world of work has evolved and it will continue to evolve. And I'd just be curious, knowing that the world of work continues to evolve, how can people go about building relationships? And just as a specific example, I mean, even just in the world of Upwork, right? A lot of folks who are freelancers or individual business owners on Upwork, they're not necessarily working in the same type of the world of work as, as other people are. And more people and more people are doing that. 
But yeah. as the other, for the rest of us, continue to evolve in the world of work, what are some of those principles from Love is a Killer app that can really help them during these changing times? We think a lot at Upwork about our marketplace being a, a platform for relationships between uh, business buyers and freelancers. And so I coach business buyers a lot on what does it take to build a really enduring relationship. The word collaboration often comes up. So collaboration is when two people acting as equals pursue a common vision. So you have to stop and think about that. Two people acting as equals pursue a common vision. So I believe that from a business standpoint, the way to build up relationships with freelancers and contractors and virtual agencies is to trust them enough to treat them as equals and co-create outcomes versus throwing a gig across the table with a timeline and a budget and evaluating them purely on their ability to meet those metrics, okay? That's not gonna build a relationship that's gonna drive a transaction. And eventually, with enough repetition or ratchets, as we like to call it in the investment community, you will build a relationship up just through familiarity. But if you want to very quickly build a relationship up, I just worked on this yesterday because I drink my own champagne. I use a lot of freelance talent through all of my project work streams. I got on the phone yesterday morning when I was working on a rewrite on some work that a freelancer had turned in, and I decided that they deserved a seat at the table for us to change it, that I should not just unilaterally, quote, fix it like a teacher, but instead we should co-collaborate on what the finished narrative for this particular marketing project should look like. And I could tell. By the end of the conversation and during the subsequent day of production, that that made a real difference to this person in terms of building our relationship because it showed them a respect and a level of trust that actually connected with their intrinsic motivation. For those of you listening, there's a great book by Dan Pink called Drive. And he talks about the idea that money isn't what motivates people. That's an that's a extrinsic motivation. What motivates people is meaning and a sense of mastery and a sense of purpose. So when you can connect with that in the act of collaboration, treating others as equals, you give them the passion. And, and, and I think nothing drives our relationships today better than people that connect with our intrinsic motivation and give us that sense of meaning, that sense of mastery, that sense of purpose. I think that's my number one piece of advice. I think those are really great points. And I think even if you're not working in a freelance setting, uh, what you talked about, particularly around your mindset around collaboration and co-creating outcomes still very much applies. And I just yeah. think about in today's world, none of us work in a silo in and of ourselves yeah. for the most part, right? But collaborating with others, cross-functional peers and stakeholders. And so I think a lot of that still very much applies uh, in the traditional kind of corporate setting for that matter. Yeah, let me give you one piece of advice for collaboration too, because I think a lot about this topic. So let's say that you're in a collaborative meeting and someone has an idea and you want to play devil's advocate. Don't do it. 
right? People people used to ask me, they'd say, I'd have an idea in a meeting, a proposed solution. And they'd say, hey, Tim, do you mind if I play devil's advocate? And I say, well, sure. But first, do you mind if I play Wikipedia? Devil's advocate was invented in the 13th century by the Catholic Church because many people that had been nominated to become, say, a cardinal had a lot of skeletons in the closet. So they begin this practice of having a local attorney create a case against usually the most beloved person in that community. Their role was to be the devil's advocate for this attorney. It could be so damaging to their reputation. They were only required to do it once in their entire life. And that's what you want to do in this situation. So here's my point. Beating up on someone's idea is a way to chill the collaboration chemistry of an organization. Okay. At Pixar, that's not how they do it. If you have a problem with that idea, Ed Catmull would expect you to improve that idea. So here's a better way. If you hear an idea and there's something about it that's just bugging the crap out of you and you're about to play devil's advocate and say, have you thought of this? Give them a little bit of credit and instead use something called appreciative inquiry. I love this approach better. I asked him a question. I'd say, Al, when you came up with the idea, I'm sure you wrestled with this budgeting issue, which may be my objection to it. I'm sure you wrestled with this budgeting issue. My question for you is, how did you overcome it? What was the workaround that still brought it to light? And you would be surprised. Eight times out of 10, not scientific, but in general, I've experienced eight times out of 10. Do you know what they say? They say, I did think about that. And I did think about the fact that we were already cutting a bunch of things and how could we go spend more money? Here was my thinking process. I was thinking that we could partner over here with the sales organization because they have excess budget. We could use that, pay them back with blah, 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 blah. And that's how I overcame it. And then that person cheerfully continues to talk about their idea. <laughs> that is not how they respond. When you say, I want to play devil's advocate, there's no way in the world we can afford it, you put them on defensive. In his book, Splitting the Difference, FBI hostage negotiator Chris Voss talks about the importance of keeping people in system one, where they don't feel threatened thinking, instead of system two, where they feel attacked thinking. So in collaboration, don't criticize the idea, question the assumptions behind the idea and use questions instead of declarative statements, you get to a better result. I like that approach and it seems to be much more expansive. I love expansive in terms of thinking about, and to your point, co-creating around this as opposed right. to looking at it as an adversarial approach. It's like improv, right? Yes and. Yes and. Say yes, yeah. but it's over, man. The joke is dead. Yeah, yeah. One of the things about, or that struck me about Love is a Killer app but particularly within the context of how, at least at the time, and even still now, I think people think about approaching things like relationship building and networking, is that it wasn't just about thinking about what you per se want, but rather what you can provide to others, while certainly still having an intention around and in, in knowing what is important to you. Uh, do you think that's a fair assessment? And also just in today's you know, world of work where people are busy, there's multiple priorities going on at any given time. How do you navigate that knowing that, hey, I, I got a list of things I need to do. I know I need others you know, to help me, but I also know that I probably need to give some too. And so how can we maybe think about using some of those principles of love as a killer app within fully knowing that, hey, look, like my boss needs me to get this done and I, yeah. I have all these other things. So let me see this book's behind me. 
I can't imagine it wouldn't be. Of course, it's behind me. This book. This is The Art of Happiness by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. I read this when I was working on Love is the Killer app. You can actually see, you can actually see cliff notes here, right? Just like I talk about in the book, the cliff and tag. The Dalai Lama believes that happiness is the absence of negative thought. And that one of the ways to become a happier person is to develop the strength to delay gratification. Or as Ray Dalio says, wait for it if it's important. Mm -hmm. So that's it. I mean, I'm transparent with people. If I'm selling something, they know I'm selling something. Yeah. When I was at broadcast.com, I closed many deals. I just didn't ask for the order right away. I waited for it. I delayed gratification. I felt like I needed to earn my seat at the table by being a generous person and that at some point we would establish trust through my willingness to delay gratification and it would be rewarding. I think that's the happy middle here. And that is just be patient. If, if you see an opportunity that you want to pursue in business, earn your way into that opportunity. Like in, in, in B2B sales, that's like a core philosophy. Earn the right. And so that's it. Delay gratification, you'll be a happier person. And, and by the way, the Dalai Lama is correct. It is a strength that one builds up over a very long period of time. It is not in our human nature to delay gratification, especially during challenging times where, as I mentioned before, we're living in this like terrified existence of safety and security. That's when you will be tested. I often would say, and I said it not only during the dot-com crash, I said it during the Great Recession of 2008, I said it during the spring of 2020, you will not be remembered by the things you did when times were great. You will be remembered for how you behaved when times were awful and dire. And I continue to tell that to people as we face these dips, which will continue during the course of our life. I, the two things that really jumped out to me in what you just said remind me back to some of some of the best salespeople that I had a chance to work with when I was at Salesforce, which has an oh, exceptional great group culture. of salespeople. I knew uh, Mark since that, he was at Siebel Systems trying to escape yeah. that rat hole. Yeah. <laughs> He, he found a way to escape, didn't he? He did. And he did it right. <laughs> he rewrote how it was done. But the two things that, that come to mind, I think, number one, to your point, some of the best salespeople that I worked with there, they always were comfortable in the long game. And to your point, they, they, didn't, feel, they didn't feel the pressure to, they could ride through when the big deal took a turn here or a turn there, or maybe a meeting got pushed, even though they had a supposed deadline in the pipeline track and within Salesforce that said, the deal should be closed here. They were able to kind of ride through the calm and to understand, okay, like I know I'm working towards a bigger goal. And so sometimes the things are going to slip. And I think even if you're not closing million dollar enterprise software deals, whether you're applying for a job, trying to land another opportunity, I think having the ability to keep your eye on the bigger goal to help you navigate through the highs and lows is really important. And then the other yeah. thing, and I think this is where I see Love with this Killer app coming in, when you have a good process or the good things that are going to lead you to the goal, that gives you the confidence to ride through those highs and lows. Because if you're showing up using the right set of principles, even if things may not go out the right way each given time, if you're yeah. confident enough in your process and following those principles, they're going to show up in some way. Yeah, they're, The outcome yeah. will eventually come.
And I think to just add to that, Al, be confident enough in the kindness and the intelligence of other people that you do business with. I mean, if I had to just tell you one thing is that we should be as confident in the others we do business with as we are in ourselves, mm-hmm. because it shows. Mm-hmm. And the Pygmalion effect is true. People will respond equal um, or less than how you treat and expect them to behave. And if you extend trust, they work really hard to keep it because we have this, 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 this belief that's this buried beneath the surface that trust arrives by Maserati. I'm sorry, let me get this right. We have this belief that trust arrives uh, by horse and leaves by Maserati. So uh, my point here is that we, we really cherish as human beings, other people that believe in us. And I think that we live in a world where it's easier to be cynical and think that every single person we talk to is out to get us. Nope. If we believe that's how they're going to behave. And conversely, if we're confident in other people to pay it forward, which is the advice I always give people, don't pay it back, pay it forward. Because that, Adam Grant once told me about this, that makes the world go round. It's not, it's not zero sum like reciprocation. So just trust other people, have confidence in them. One of the topics in, or concepts in your book, Love is a Killer App, that always comes back to me time and time again is the concept of a love cat. Could you yep. talk about what that is and also maybe offer one or two uh, tactics that if someone wanted to exemplify that, how they could do it? One of my favorite bands of all time is the band The Cure. I love Robert Smith, great singer, but a really great poet. And he wrote this song back in the 80s called Love Cats. And it really, it really packaged up a concept that I had come to see in my business life. The lyric goes like this, we move like cagey tigers, no two can get closer than this. And what it was really about is the idea that there are people in this world who will be incredibly generous and compassionate and humanly connected, but that doesn't mean they're weak. In fact, it's the source of their strength. And I'll never forget when someone was talking to me about Herb Kelleher, a founder of Southwest Airlines. This is back before I wrote the book. This is back in the late 90s. They said, oh yeah, he's a tough old love cat. And I thought, man, that that's what I want to be. I want to be this winning business person, entrepreneur that gives my way to the top. And that's what I meant. A love cat is a person who aspires to become successful by promoting the success of other people. They can be firm when they need to, but they can be generous where others can't. So that's what I mean by that. And I still believe people should have that as as an archetypal persona that they're pursuing because to use the Dalai Lama one more time, at the end of your life or your career, you want to be in a position where you can look back on it and enjoy it a second time. And you will do that if you got there the right. I love that. And I very much have, for me personally, have tried to use the same approach into how I go through life and go through my own relationships and my career. And what a what a great way to to end this conversation. Tim, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Uh, very selfishly, this was wonderful for me and just being able to get to a chance to talk to someone who I've admired and whose work has really made an influence on me. But I would love to know, so I can share with my audience, 
If people want to know more about you, what you're up to, where can they go to further engage with you or find more information about what is going on in your world? TimSanders.com or just connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, Just search Tim Sanders and Upwork. I'll be your first result. Hi, everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.